Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Saturday, October the 14th, 2023. It is currently 8.21 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. On one hand, we've got to talk about something that's extremely serious, extremely serious. It's tragic. It's horrifying. It's horrible. So how do you talk about that at the same time? You, you could have a little bit of fun here. How do you, you can't really balance that out. And, and that's kind of the difficulty with trying to broadcast right now. On one hand, we have a very horrible, horrific situation developing right now in real time before our very eyes, if you're keeping up with it and watching the news, and you know what I'm referring to, where we're referring to the ongoing situation between Israel and Gaza, Israel and Hamas. We have the the, the escalation. Israel is about to, to go in to Gaza to try to eradicate and eliminate Hamas. There's going to be casualties. It's going to be horrif- horrifying. Uh, over thousands of people have already died. It's a horrible, horrible situation. And I don't want to make light of that in any way, shape, or form. At the same time, while other things have been going on here on the broadcast that have been a little frustrating, but at the same time, a little bit humorous. So can I talk about that? I, I don't know the correct protocol here, but I'll at least try my best to tell you what happened. Typically, I would probably do this in a more humorous way, but because of the ongoing situation within Israel, the ongoing situation there in the Middle East and the and the fear of escalation and this becoming more than just Israel and Hamas, but other nations getting involved, say Iran, Russia, etc. That leads many people, especially Christians, to open up their Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 38 and start pointing to Ezekiel 38 going, this is moving. It may not be Ezekiel 38 today, but it could be moving in that direction where others may be opening up their Bibles going, Ezekiel 38 is coming to pass. And, and I've tried my very best to turn on the microphone over and over and over here to try to keep us from going to any extremes, looking at this very carefully, not jumping to conclusions and, and trying to talk, trying to bring a more balanced approach to this entire subject, not leading to conspiratorial thinking, condemning the anti-Semitism. And all of that understanding that many Christians do not believe that modern day Israel has anything to do with biblical Israel. Biblical Israel was basically wiped off the face of the earth. None of the, the, the covenant that was given to them, they failed it. And that was given to spiritual Israel, to the church. Some would say there was never, there was never a covenant made with the nation. It was always made with spiritual Israel. And so it's not that the church replaced Israel. It's always been the church. It's always been spiritual Israel and those promises about land was never real land. Uh, it's, it's spiritual influence or spiritual power, whatever the case may be. And so there, we know there are th- some of those right now using this as an opportunity to talk about their perspective on it. And there are others who believe God is not done with the nation of Israel. He's made promises to them and they will be fulfilled. So we have kind of a division there. We've got people uh, who are being very anti-Semitic on the, the left and the right, especially extreme Christian nationalism tends to be anti-Semitic. We know those on the left tend to be more pro 
pro-Palestinian. In some cases, they're being pro-Hamas. They 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 bl- blame Israel for all of this. It's just been a it's been horrific to watch. And I've been trying to be somewhat of a voice of reason, trying to be balanced here and trying my best to to help you think this through biblically. But we're go we have to talk about Ezekiel 38 because no matter where you turn, a lot of people are talking about Ezekiel chapter 38. So I've been debating with myself tomorrow at Victory Baptist Church, dedicate an hour, two hours, maybe to an observation observational exercise through Ezekiel 38. In other words, not opening the Bible and bringing a certain theological perspective and giving an interpretation of Ezekiel 38, but opening the Bible and having everyone in my church grab a Bible, a notebook, and a Bible dictionary. And we do an observational exercise where we go through Ezekiel 38, maybe Ezekiel 39, and we just try to observe what is clearly there. We don't read into it any system of eschatology, any theological perspective. We don't read any interpretation into it. We just try to go through and go, here's what we know is in the text alone. And by knowing what's in the text, it's knowledge of the text, clearly observing what's there, that you are protected from all the different ways people manipulate it, twist it, turn it, and read into it. So I wanted to do that. In the meantime, I thought, well, you know, it's Saturday, so I could do a little sermon prep, right? I could just grab some random sermons on Ezekiel 38. I could turn on this microphone and, well, I could just kind of, well, what I love to do with sermon reviews, it's like I'm listening to the sermon in real time. I've never heard it before. You've never heard it before. We listen to it together and we just make observations and analysis and critique and, and we may use it to go in our own direction. But I thought, hey, it would, it would be at least getting Ezekiel 38 into my mind. So I did a random search on the Sermons 2.0 app, f- picked at random a message called Ezekiel 36 to 38, I believe, or Ezekiel 36 to 39, Gog versus Babylon. And I'm like, they're, they're going to take Gog, the Gog of, ex- of Ezekiel 38. If I'm saying Exodus, I apologize. Ezekiel 38, because we're working on the tabernacle in another, uh, uh, another series. So Ezekiel 38, they're taking Gog from Ezekiel 38 and attaching it to Babylon and Jeremiah 50. Oh, that's an interesting, what is the correlation? What is the connection? So I thought it'll be a good, interesting message to listen to. We did an hour and 15, hour and 16 minutes of review. And ladies and gentlemen, the sermon never mentioned Ezekiel. Not 36, not 37, not 38. Now, maybe later in the sermon they did, we had to finally give up, but it was just so like, he, he, he had started working through Jeremiah 50. He had gone to Jeremiah 51, which has something like 60 something verses. There was no way he was going to get through uh, Jeremiah 51 and get to Ezekiel. I don't know why the sermon was entitled Ezekiel 36 through 39, Gog versus Babylon, because it, it, it was, it should have been it should have just been Babylon, Jeremiah 50 and 51 is, is what it should have been. It was bizarre. That's one of the dangers of not listening. So it was very frustrating. We had a absolute technological breakdown in the middle of it on our one pra- uh, platform. Spreaker completely crashed. So I, I was frustrated an hour and 15 minutes. I got no sermon prep in. I got nothing about Ezekiel. And I'm like, I... I can't let this day, I, I gotta get Ezekiel in here somehow. So here I am 
Saturday evening, the situation in Israel continues to escalate. That situation continues to get worse. The next 24 to 48 hours is going to be probably horrific to watch and to see. So I'm going to be keeping up with that. But in the meantime, I want to turn our attention to Ezekiel 38, since so many people are saying, hey, this is the chapter to look at. Anytime anything happens to happens in Israel, let's look at it. I, I, I don't know if we're going to get an observational approach or we're going to get an interpretive approach. My guess is we're going to get a very much an interpretive approach. I like an observational approach better, but I'll try to provide the observational approach. But in the meantime, this gives us maybe an hour to spend in the book of Ezekiel chapter 38 and we'll just see what perspective they put forth. I don't know again. I have no idea, but I'm hoping this sermon is actually about Ezekiel 38. And if it is wonderful, if it isn't, well, I tried once. I tried twice. At some point, you just have to accept you failed. But I'm hoping we get something accomplished this evening. So if you have a Bible, Ezekiel 38, notebook, pencil. I don't even care if you use pen, crayon, permanent marker, use whatever you want. Let's see what we can get accomplished tonight. Um, as far as Ezekiel 38, continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for all the people suffering, whether in Israel, whether in Gaza, pray that somehow peace could be brought to this situation. And, 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 and just, I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole situation is horrific and horrible. I don't want to make light of that in any way, shape, or form. I'm trying not to be too joking about everything that went down with the sermon. It was just more, I mean, it's, it's funny in some ways. It's frustrating in another because it's like, how can you, enti- how can you give a title to your sermon that says Ezekiel 36 to 38, Gog versus Babylon? And then you don't even talk about Gog or Ezekiel. I don't, I don't understand, I don't understand that. It's like, it's like me naming my sermon John chapter one and we cover Leviticus chapter 12. Like it, it just seems, it seems like a weird approach to sermon titling, but okay. But that's okay. Um, are you ready? Let's see if this one actually is about Ezekiel. I'm hoping and let's see what we can find out. And, uh, Let's see, because everyone's going to be, everyone's already referring to it. I don't know how familiar you are with it. I just know everyone, I feel everyone reads into it. I think, I I believe too much eisegesis is occurring, meaning they're reading into the text instead of exegeting, pulling from the text. That's my own, my own perspective. Let's see uh, what we can, uh, what we can have here. All right. And uh, I think we... To, to be talking about e, uh, technical problems. I think we've had a technical problem on the Church One app. So I apologize if that occurred. I'm not paying too much attention, but uh, let's see if we can just make it through any technical problems this evening and move forward. So here we go. Well, good evening. I think we're live now. Um, Good evening in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, our beloved Saviour, and thank you for listening. Um, I want to thank you for your question in advance, um, Disciple of Jesus Ministries, uh, subject subject cessationism. It's a subject that I intend to talk upon. Again, it'll be one of those subjects where we may differ, but we can differ graciously in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my topic this evening is going to be, what should I do with that Bible? Don't tell me I can't hear that Bible. Okay, you're going to have to bear with me because I left my Bible in the other room. I can't believe it. I spent so... No, here it is. Here it is. That's it. I spent so much time um, setting up new equipment, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Um, but here we are. 
got my Bible, my trusty Bible. Uh, I use a small one for the, these um, uh, things because it's, it's very easy to flip over pages very quickly in this one. Um, I've got some pulpit Bibles, which you could use to um, build a house with. They're so big. But uh, uh, this is um, this is the right size for this kind of uh, thing that we're doing this evening. So my question this evening, I want to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 and uh, Gog and Magog. This is a really important topic. It's important for us in the days in which we live. It's written for our days. It's written for us to understand. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, it, it's something which many Christians are either uh, ignorant of. Um, they've heard of Gog and Magog and they've heard that Russia might invade Israel, but they haven't really read this passage or it's um a passage which has been pre-interpreted for them by various doctrinal systems. Okay, now that's interesting. He believes he believes many people are ignorant of Ezekiel 38. They've heard of Gog and Magog. They've heard of possibly Russia invading Israel, but they don't really know the text. It would be Oh, I'm I'm very tempted. I'm very tempted. I'm very tempted to write out a test tonight and show up to church tomorrow and go, all right, everyone grab a Bible or, or everyone grab a notebook and a pencil. Put your Bibles away. I'm going to ask 10 questions on Ezekiel 38. Go. Well, what do you think? What, how would your church do? How would you do if I was to give you a quiz right now in Ezekiel 38? Not a fill in the blank where you look, but just start asking questions about Ezekiel 38. Just start asking questions. How would you do? I mean, honestly, how well do you know Ezekiel 38 and 39? How well do you know Ezekiel 36 to 39? Now, a lot, there's always discussions about Ezekiel 38. Anytime anyone even throws a rock in Israel or Palestine, it's almost like immediately one, just any type of escalation of, of violence, everybody runs to Ezekiel 38. Everyone talks about it. I think there is great ignorance. And he says that a lot of people understand it, but they understand it because a theological system, a doctrinal system has been presupposed upon the text. Now, I do believe that's a major problem. I do believe that's a major problem. A lot of people understand Ezekiel 38 because of what they've been told is in it. They didn't do the work to actually pull from it. Now, I, I believe that is a problem. Now, I think he's going to approach the text probably with his own presuppositional approach. Maybe he's going to do more of an observational study. I hope, wish he would do an observational study, but we will see. Um, but I'm just curious, how well would your church do on, on a t test on Ezekiel 38? How well? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And remember, ignorance, this is so important, ignorance is the soil in which manipulation and deception is planted. Knowledge protects the soil from deception and manipulation being planted. You have to know that. When I say no, it's not knowing a theological system. It's not knowing a doctrinal system. It's knowing the text. All right. I'm, I'm interested in where he's going to go here. Here we go. And therefore they are led to believe uh, what they're told to believe about it. My purpose here isn't to persuade you to agree with everything I say. I don't expect people to agree with everything I say. I certainly don't think I've got everything right here about Gog and Magog. I certainly don't think um, that uh, um, 
that I have all the answers. I don't. Uh, good evening, Solidaire Gloria. And good evening, Sonia. Um, I don't think I've got all the answers. I don't think I have um, insights that others don't have. I think uh, he was saying hello to those who are coming into whatever chat program he's using. So um, I, whenever I hear people do that broadcasting, I know what they're doing. Sometimes I forget to do that because on Spreaker, people can come in and chat with me. And a lot of times I'm trying to address them and then I almost forget that I'm talking to people who are not seeing the, the chat. So when he says, hello, he's, he's giving their username. So that, that's what is obviously going on there. Okay. But here we go. Let, let's, let's. Let's see where he's going to take this. I'm, I'm curious. It, it looks like we're going to talk about Ezekiel 38. So I'm excited. Uh, I don't think that um, I, I wish I could spend a lot more time studying this. There are so many avenues you can go down when you study Ezekiel 38 and 39. But uh, Mia, good evening and welcome. Um, I, what I want to say is, is that, it, and this sounds uh, um, logical, <laughs> that Ezekiel 8 and 38 and 39 follow on from Ezekiel 37. And what you quite often find is you'll get either preaching on the dry bones um, in Ezekiel 37 or you'll get preaching on Ezekiel 38. I'll be honest, I haven't heard much preaching on either topic. But we can divide things into chapters and then fail to see the connection between the two. Oh, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. What is the correlation? What is the connection? Between Ezekiel 37 and 38. Are they in chronological order? Does the events of 38 come after the event in Ezekiel 37? Are they, how are they connected? Now, can you draw, can you determine the correlation? Can you determine the connection? Can you determine if they're in chronological order or not just on the text alone? Or do you almost instantaneously leave the text, look at your study Bible notes, look to a commentary, look to a sermon, and someone tells you they're not in chronological order or they are not connected, they're disconnected, they're separated by thousands of years. Do you just impose whatever you've been told onto it? That's a very that's a very good question. Let's see what he's going to do here. My point is this: that if Ezekiel thirty-seven is about the regeneration, restoration of Israel, which we were considering over the last se- several talks, including Romans eleven and Paul the Apostle Paul's argument, then Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine follow on from that. That we don't need to be indefinite about the time scale. That that the invasion of Israel by Gog and Magog and his armies occurs. At the same time, or in the same period, the same um, uh, chronological period, that Israel is brought back into the land and then restored and then regenerated and brought to know Jesus Christ as their true Messiah. Now, that's very interesting. If Ezekiel 37 is the restoration restoring salvation of Israel, bringing them back into the land, they are saved. Then the invasion in 38 and 39 follows that. So until Israel is restored in the land and saved, then you don't, you, until that happens, there is no Gog and Magog. There is no invasion until that happens. Not the invasion of Ezekiel 38. Now that would, if that is true, 
then that would give you a clear scriptural way of looking at world events going, well, this is not Gog and Magog. No way, no how. You've got to have the restoration and a sense regeneration, salvation of Israel. They've got to be brought back into the land and saved. And, and, they, and all of that has to be fulfilled before that. Now, Israel, are, are, would you say they're back in the land now? Well, yes and no. Do they have all the land? No. So how much of the land do they must they possess? Does Ezekiel 37 indicate if that means they have all the land now? Then they would have to have all the land. Once they get all the land, then this would occur? Like there, there's, there's, there's lots of, of questions here, right? So I, I, he's already going down the right. I mean, those are great questions. Those are great questions. What's the correlation between 37 and 38? All right. Let, let's, let's continue. Let's continue. And savior from sin. So we're going to look at that this evening. We're going to look at Gog of Magog. Um, interestingly enough, if you, Google Gog and Magog uh, with London, you will get led to many pages which talk about Gog of Magog in London. Now, some of you will probably see real significance in that. I haven't been able to dig deeply into that, but except for this, that uh, every year the Lord Mayor of London has um, uh, an annual procession, and uh, very prominent in that procession are uh, idols, Gog of Magog, who are said to be ancient giants. Um, uh, That's just by way of interest, Gog and Magog is found in the city of London. We need to read the word of God. So let's turn to, we're, not, we're going to part of uh, Ezekiel 38 and part of Ezekiel 39. We're going to start with the last verse of Ezekiel 37. The reason being that we want to show how these passages are connected. There's no pause or change in topic between Ezekiel 37 and 38. So if we go to the last verse of Ezekiel 37. I do love the fact he's using an actual physical Bible. You can hear the turning of the pages. I do love that. I do love that. There's just something about that that I'm much more drawn in to listen because I, I, I picture the, it just, it gives me that sound that he's got a Bible there. I don't even want to see the video. I just, I like that. I like that because like right here, I've got the physical Bible, physical Bible, physical Bible. So, all right, let's, I know that may be, I don't want to think it's because of the way I was raised with physical books. I don't want to think it's because of just age or experience. I just personally think we look at too many electronic devices 24 hours a day when we get ready to, the one way to make the Bible time with the Bible at least unique and different is to put away that device and look at an actual physical book. I think it, I think it actually is more, it, we now have the ability to make it feel more, like before, you had electronic devices. Picking up the Bible just felt like picking up any other book. So how did you? How could you make it special then? Because it just feels like you're picking. If you're like me, read, read, read. You know all, all the books that I've ever read. It, like I've got to make this feel different. Well, now it's easy. I spend time on the iPad. Now put the iPad down. Put pick up a physical Bible. There's immediate difference. There's immediate, like, my mind is telling me this is unique. So I, I do think that's important, but let's see what he's going to read. He's going to read the last verse of Ezekiel 37, which I think is brilliant, 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 because he's drawing this correlation. And I think that's very, very, very important 
and and seeing that. So let's let's see what he reads and if he offers any commentary, what, how he's going to approach this. So we read Ezekiel 37, verse 28. We'll read down, I think, to verse 16 uh, of Ezekiel 38. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, sorry, Ezekiel 37, 28. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Okay, now we've been talking about the tabernacle in Exodus, right? Sanctuary, build a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. We saw that in Exodus, right? Everybody remember, for those who've been listening to our study on the tabernacle, that's been a key verse, right? God told Moses, you're going to build a sanctuary so I can dwell among them. Everybody should know where that verse is, okay? It's almost a quiz, all right? Uh, Ezekiel 37, 28, And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. What sanctuary is going to be in the midst of them forevermore? What, what sanctuary is he referencing there? What is he referring to? The third temple? Is it the third temple? Is it referring to heavenly, the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem? Well, like, what is he referring to there? All right. And then how does that connect to Ezekiel 38? Clearly, Ezekiel 37, God seems to be in the midst of Israel. Israel seems to be in the land. They seem to be restored. They seem to be regenerated. Something of great significance has happened in 37. Now, I can come along and interpret it from a different school of theology and say, no, 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 no. Ezekiel 37 is not about the nation of Israel. It's about spiritual Israel. All right? And you can turn this into like a spiritual story of the church. I just don't think that that's what this is referencing, but let's see how he handles it. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armour, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togomar of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm, thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into my mind, and thou into thy mind, sorry, and thou shalt think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nation, nations, 
which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba and Edan in the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, thou shalt thou not know it? Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And then verse 16, And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. I want to move on now to Ezekiel 39, and we'll read verses 18 to 23 of Ezekiel 39. So Ezekiel 39, verses 18 and to 23. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, of bullocks, all of them fatlings of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you be full of um, full and drink blood till you be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. God is talking about the destruction of Gog and his armies. Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and with all men of war, saith the Lord God. I will set my glory among the heathen and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day and forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, have I done unto them, and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel. The whole house of Israel, that reminds us of um, Ezekiel 37. These bones are the whole house of Israel or Paul in Romans 11. All Israel shall be saved. So verse 25 again, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that, they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Hallelujah. Okay, now, let's be honest. If you just read all of that, you have any clue what's going on? Come on, just be honest, just be honest. If you just read that, do you know? Because almost instantaneously, if people start telling me what's going on, it's almost like, oh, oh, I heard that sermon. Oh, I've read that commentary. They're almost immediately take it from something else. And if people don't know what's going on, they immediately run to a commentary. They run to a book. They run to an article. They look up an article like Ezekiel 38 meaning on Google. And then you'll, and then, and they start borrowing from that. What really is going on? 
Now, this is where I think the observational approach to the text would be so beneficial because what you want to do, it's maddening and it's frustrating and it's not fun and it's not quote unquote good preaching from a human standard because you're just going through there going, okay, guys, what is that? What's happening here? What's going on? And the people are looking to you like, no, 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 no. What's going on based off the text? What, what, what can we say is going on just on the text alone? And guess what? It doesn't sound near as exciting and as dramatic if I go look up a sermon and borrow from it and then read the interpretation I have found from a sermon, from a textbook, from seminary, from and re, and, and preach it. Because all then I have to do is just take the meaning that's assigned to the text and then just structure it into a good outline form with some good illustrations, making sure I make good eye contact and make sure I, you know, do lots of inflection with my voice and use some emotion and I can make it a powerful sermon. Everybody's like, oh man, Ezekiel 38. Did you know this about the chapter? You didn't study the chapter. Someone just re- just gave you whatever interpretation they where, where they gave you the interpretation they took from somewhere else. But if you go through it from an observational way, it won't be exciting. It won't be dramatic. People won't say great sermon. But maybe we need to learn the text because just come on. Do you know what's going on just on the base of that reading? Come on, do you? Do you really know? And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, okay, we would think that word is coming to Ezekiel. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, and the chief prince of Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. All right now, so God wants Ezekiel to set his face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So is Gog a him? Is it a person? Like, like, see, we start asking these just observational questions, observational questions. And so, and in many cases, if we're not careful, if we ask these questions, we start trying to interpret, but at least like based off that text, clearly we can draw at least certain facts. Just trying to put those facts down is not near as exciting. I, I guarantee, I have a feeling he's getting ready to just start throwing interpretation at us, but let's see how he approaches it. God pours out his spirit on the house of Israel and the blindness is taken away and the Jewish people believe. But we're living in those days. People have returned to the land after many years of desolation. So these are prophetic times and times when we should look up and see what God is doing and look for God's works in the land of Israel and the people of the Jews. Father, we pray that you'd improve our time and that it would be for the glory and honour of your name, for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the lifting up of Jesus Christ and his gospel and his glory uh, and for our own our own edification, Lord, that we would grow in grace, that we would find mercy in your eyes, that we would, we would be filled with your Holy Spirit and thrilled with these words in this passage, Lord. Father, we pray for the forgiveness of our sins and cleansing in Jesus' name. We pray for the Jewish people, Lord. We pray that the day would come when your Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, the spirit of grace and supplication. We pray for the hastening of the day when they will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn, and when they will believe, Lord, and when every one of them will name the name of Jesus Christ as their Messiah and believe on him and be saved from their sins. Father, thank you for this opportunity to meet together, and we pray that you bless and use this broadcast for your glory. 
Have mercy upon those who are mourning and grieving over the death of loved ones, Lord. Have mercy on those who've lost very close members of the family, with the whole family grieving, Lord. Comfort them, draw nigh to them. Be that real, true comfort and fortress that you are to those who cry out to you and seek you in times of trouble, in times of distress, Lord. Have mercy upon them, we pray. So, Father, we commend this time to you now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, there's his prayer. Now we're going to see where he's going. He's read. A good, he, he did a great job starting in 37, 28, trying to draw that there's a correlation between 37 and 38. That's great. He's read a good portion of 38, a, a good portion of 39. Now let's see where, where he's going to go. Again, I believe because so many people are talking about Ezekiel 38, 39, anytime anything happens in Israel. Again, I, I stress, I believe an observational exercise is what is needed. I think he's going to go much more from an interpretive perspective, but we'll allow him to go. And then maybe tomorrow at Victory Baptist Church, I spend multiple hours trying to lead people through an observational exercise of Ezekiel 38 and 39, again, which will not be dramatic and fun, but I think it's the only way to really help protect from, well, people reading into the text. But let's see what he's going to do. Well, I have to say, I, I find this subject fascinating I find it extraordinary. I remember 30 years ago, a certain man, the man was named David Gardner. He was a Christian minister who'd written a book called The Trumpet Sounds for England. And he had very strong views on the, the God's dealings with the nation of Israel. He was saying the same things that I've been saying, that all the Jewish people will be saved one day. Uh, and uh, he um, got invited back at about 1980, sometime around then. He got invited by the senior military in the United Kingdom to, to go to Europe and address the top military um, generals in NATO um, on the subject of Gog and Magog. So he, he, he said to them, um, he said, you see, this was during the Cold War when there were huge armies ranged on the Russian side that we believe could have invaded Europe at a moment's notice. Um, he said to these generals, um, you see all those armies that you're afraid of on the other side um, of the border. He said, well, you have nothing to fear from them. He said, all of those armies are going to be defeated on the mountains of Israel. And I agree with him. Uh, now, some of you will probably write to me and say that uh, Magog isn't Russia, that Rosh isn't Russia. Rosh comes in verse two. It's not in the King James Bible, the authorized Bible, but it says chief prince of, um, of Rosh, or the prince of Rosh. Um, in some translations. Um, but uh, but I, I, I right from the outset, I would say that I believe that um, Russia is, is um, Magog and that Gog is the ruler of Russia and the leader of these armies. Now, now, he is throwing in a little bit of interpretation, just so that you know. In 1917, Schofield identified Gog is the prince, Magog is the land. All right? Gog is the prince, Magog is the land. Now, that's an interpretation, not so much an observation, but of interpretation. So just so that you know, that's how Schofield in 1917 identified Gog is the prince, Magog is the land. You can, you can do what, you can look at that for yourself and see, does an observational reading of the text, would it lead you to that conclusion 
or would it not? Just an observational. Don't, don't worry about whose system you offend. We don't care. We're not bound to a system. We are supposed to be bound and submissive to the text. All right. Let's see where he's going to go and if he's going to explain any of this. Again, that's controversial. Not everybody agrees that many, many people agree with that, but not everybody does. And um, if you, this is the north or the far north that this army comes from, or it comes from other places as well, we see that. If you take a globe, if you have a globe and you draw a line due north from Israel, it crosses inland. And um, we don't read of an army of so many men uh, coming from Finland to invade um israel and being defeated on the mountains of israel so uh, it it's not it's not absolutely due north we're talking about here but a country a powerful nation in the north of to the north of israel is going to invade and the day i believe will come when russia sweeps down through the caucasus and with multitudes of people to invade israel please note He's just, he's now, remember, he says that one of the major problems with Ezekiel 38 is ignorance and people approach the text with presuppositions. Then he starts with Russia is going to invade Israel. Maybe not necessarily due north, but from kind of this, and he names kind of a region. But wait a minute, he's, has he demonstrated this from the text in any way, shape, or form? Maybe he will, but to me, he's already, in a sense, you know, priming the pump. He's, in a sense, already poisoning the well, depending on your perspective. He's already kind of telling you, hey, that's Russia. This is about Russia invading Israel. Whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. How about we work through the text and on what basis are you assigning that? Like, what is the textual basis for saying this? Now, what the real question is, here's the real question, all right? The real question, if you ever approach Ezekiel 38 and you even you even care about doing bi- basic biblical hermeneutics, stop worrying about who Russia, who, who Russia is and who these people are. The issue you have to determine is before you identify is you look at all of the events that happened in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and say, has that ever happened in any literal or physical way? If it hasn't, then we have to be looking for a future. Okay. That if it has, and you say, well, it hasn't, it, it has been fulfilled. It wasn't fulfilled literally. It was fulfilled spiritually. Then you've got to be able to demonstrate how, how that occurs. Same with Ezekiel 37. If Ezekiel 37 is about the restoration and salvation of Israel, has that occurred? Now, some will say it occurred spiritually in the church. Some say it still refers to the nation. All right, but we've got to figure out if it has occurred and if it's future. Before we start identifying who they are, we just look at the events and go, has that ever occurred? And if we can rule it out that it, that it has never occurred, then we say it must occur future. And then the question is, if we believe it is to occur future, do we then start trying to figure out who Gog, Magog, who, like who is what, who's the prince, who's the land? Do we start trying to assign meaning to that or we just say an army from the north? Do we, do we need to identify it? it? Does the text call for us to identify it? So that, that's, a, that's a deeper hermeneutical issue. If the text doesn't tell us who it is, who are we to assign who it is to it? Maybe we just go, here's what has to happen. It's never happened before. That, to me, would be the safer approach. But he's already just immediately like, Russia. 
Russia. He he just straight up like, I mean, he, he's not even wasted any time trying to demonstrate or prove it yet. Now, maybe he will, but let, we'll see. But let's look at this in more detail now. So um, the Bible is saying this is an extraordinary event. It's an extraordinary military event when multitudes uh, of soldiers come in with a, a variety, variety of weapons. We read that they, are, uh, they have all kinds of armor with them um, in uh, verse uh, four. I will turn thee back and put hooks. Yeah, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. If we look at, um, if we look at, the war in Ukraine at the moment, we find all sorts of armor being used there. Now, Ezekiel couldn't have understood modern armor. Um, and we find all sorts of armor being used there. And we find both sides using all kinds of novel and new expensive and cheap weapons. The Ukrainians invented a cheap drone um, made out of cardboard. Um, the Russians are using hypersonic drones. Uh, and uh, the, all of these things are, 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 are all kinds of armor that are being used one side against the other. And there's nothing I understand that generals like more than to test out their weapons on a battlefield. And perhaps we would say that it appears as though that's happening in Ukraine at the moment. But there's another view which says that uh, that this kind of invasion or the Battle of Armageddon, um, when it happens, will, I'm not saying this is Armageddon, um, I'll give my opinions on that in a future talk, but, but that... When this happens, just as it says in prophecy, these troops will be, um, they will be riding horses, as it says. They will be using um, weapons, as it says, and there won't be any modern weapons. The modern weapons will have been used up. They'll have been wiped out, and uh, there won't be enough weapons for all this vast multitude. Well, I, I don't know if that's the case. It seems, it seems to me that, um, it seems to me that uh, there will be weapons, modern weapons used, and uh, if if you go to Revelation, you read about an army of 200 million men coming, uh, a, a war with an army of 200 million men coming from the east. And this is this is extraordinary. It makes World War II pale into insignificance in terms of the scale of the military and the scale of the war that's coming. This, this war still has to come. So, um, well, Jason O'Brien, Finland is kind of Russia too, and uh, that's true. And, uh, of course, um, yes, it, it, Finland is Russia too, but essentially I think, I think this, is, this is Russia. Again, you can, you, can, you can look this up yourself, but if you look this up, you'll very soon get bogged down in one person arguing one thing and another person arguing another. Um, and it seems to me that... that Whilst Ezekiel didn't couldn't see our modern times and he couldn't see the situation we're in, he was he was declaring what God had told him to declare in in Old Testament terms in that time. Uh, and whilst many of the commentators c- couldn't believe what we can see in our modern time that all of this is possible, um, we even have this um, poisonous rhetoric between Israel and Russia at the present time while the Ukraine war is going on. That doesn't mean that that this is going to happen immediately. It doesn't mean that uh, that um, there's a direct link between what's happening in Ukraine now and, and, and Russia marching down through the Caucasus on Israel, but it does mean we're living in prophetic times, and it may happen very soon or it may take a while. In 1991, during the first Gulf War, we thought there was going to be some remarkable uh, military uh, situation that might lead to this, and it didn't happen. Then in 2001, after the 9-11 um, uh, atrocity, 
uh, we thought this was going to happen and it didn't happen. So um, many of us have been proved wrong and we have to be very careful about what we say. But nevertheless, uh, if um, uh, an army was fielded, it could um, cause that kind of damage. Marilee, welcome. And Flora, welcome. Uh, and, and James, just going back to your military industrial complex, possibly like World War Two and other wars, um, the military industrial complex will not only be using its weapons, but financing both sides of the conflict like it did in World War Two. Uh, just remember when he says welcome, he's looking at some window of people entering into a chat. So just so that you know what's going on there, it could be a little distracting. I know what, sometimes I, I try to be careful when I do that, when people enter into the chat on Spreaker, because I know the people listening are not, they don't, they may not have a clue what's going on. So I always try to explain it, but okay. So, all right. He, he's, he's still not really doing with the text, right? I mean, he just like, okay, armies, uh, I, I I need the text. We need to get into the text, the text, the text, the text. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We're going to run out of time, I know, but at least we've heard the text read. We do. We, we've got some things, but let's see if he digs into it a little bit more. Um, money is the root of all evil. So an extraordinary thing is going. The love of money is the root of all evil, not money, the love of money, right? I think, did he say money or did he say love of money? All right, just know, it's the love of money. All right, let's continue. It's going to happen. Um, God is um, going to bring Russia. He's going to bring these armies from many nations against Israel, and they're going to be defeated on the mountains of Israel. Um, and Please note, he just keeps restating the presupposition that he's already placed upon the text. He just keeps restating it. He's not yet, he's not exegeting at pulling from the text. I, 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 I cannot stress to people how subtle it is. Like, it's so easy to go to church and you hear a sermon and you're like, we studied the text. No, someone placed upon the text their perspective, their theological system. They, we read our systems. We read our perspectives into the text. Rarely do we just look at the text first and foremost from an observational standpoint going, here's what we know. Here's what we see. Here's what we see. Here's what we don't even try to interpret observation. Obs Remember, observation must always become, come before interpretation. The quality of your observation determines the quality of your interpretation. But we just read and, and we're so used to it. Right. We just read and then we immediately listen to a sermon, look up an article, look at our study Bible, look at a commentary and then immediately go, OK, I agree with it. This is the way. And then we just tell everyone it's right. And then when people start arguing, listen to them argue. They're almost always arguing what they've heard. They're, they're, they're all sometimes they're literally cutting and pasting from a commentary or from an article. And you're like, can we just do an observational thing from the text? He just keeps reasserting over and over and over, Russia, 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 Russia. He's, he seems to imply Russia, future, Russia, future, Russia, future, Russia, future. Okay. Yeah, can, can, can you show me in the text? We've got the 1917 Schofield. Schofield asserts that Gog is the prince and Magog is the land. 
All right. Uh, Schofield also asserts that the whole prophecy belongs to yet future day of Jehovah, Isaiah 2, 10 through 22, Revelation 19, 11 through 21, and to the battle of Armageddon. Uh, he has Revelation 16, 14, uh, Revelation 16, 14 and 19, but includes also the final revolt of the nations at the close of the kingdom age, Revelation 27 through 9. So Schofield believes this prophecy includes uh, multiple things, multiple things. Uh, not only the battle of Armageddon, but the final revolt of the nations at the close of the kingdom age in Revelation 20. Schofield believes that the prophecy includes multiple battles, I guess. He just asserts it as well. Like, uh, okay, let, let's, let's see where this goes. Let's see where this goes. Uh, the, the interesting thing there is Israel will be unwalled. Verse 11, for example, there's several verses that say this, but in verse 11, it says, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. Now, Israel at the present time exists, and that's, and that's an extraordinary thing. That's a, that's a testimony to the truthfulness of this prophecy, uh, a, a biblical prophecy, that Israel has returned to the land after nearly 2,000 years. God has brought them back into the land. But at the moment, they're absolutely bristling with sophisticated weaponry. And uh, they're not unwalled. And, uh, but when this war takes place, they are defenseless. They are living peacefully. They expect a peaceful existence. All of their neighbors are at peace with them, so they don't need weapons. They are disarmed. And it's not just that they are disarmed. They're happy about it. They are okay, now he's at least asserting that before this battle can happen, before this Gog-Magog situation can uh, occur, before this prophecy against Gog-Magog, before it can occur, according to him, he's, he, he's asserted, he's not really spoken of how he's asserting this, but he's asserted it's future for us, and that two things must be present. Ezekiel, or multiple things must be, I'm sorry, multiple things must be present. One, Israel must be back into the land. He has not asserted whether it's all the land that was promised in the, in the early covenant or just some of it, but they have to be back in the land. He's not specified. Two, Israel must be regenerated. They now have built, they have believed. They have, they have, they have now believed in Christ as their Messiah. They have repented and all Israel is saved. So they're dwelling in the land, all Israel. So they've been restored. They've been regenerated and they now are dwelling at peace with everyone and they have no defenses. They're unwalled. They're, they're, they, they, they don't believe they're in, in any danger. And then, then it appears then that they're going to be attacked and then God's going to step in. That's the way he's re reading this. That's the way he's interpreting this. Again, just do an observational reading of Ezekiel 38 with 37 and see, do you believe 37 flows into 38? Do you believe 37 must come before 38? Do you believe they're in chronological order? And then in 38, you need to just look at what's actually there. What's actually there. They are quite confident in their safety. And uh, yet this great army comes against them. and They cannot defend themselves against this army. They need the defense that comes from Almighty God. And that's God's purpose in this. Um, so, uh, so now the question is, how, how could Israel become disarmed? Well, one, one theory is this, that, that when the tribulation begins, the seven-year tribulation, that it is a time when 
the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel, perhaps Israel mistaking the Antichrist for its Messiah, but the Antichrist being the most evil individual that ever lived. So one possibility, I'm not saying this is what will happen, I'm saying this is one possibility, is that the Antichrist will enable Israel to disarm because they will believe they have um, come into a a golden age, into into, um, millennial blessings, so to speak, um, into this time when their Messiah has come and they are safe. But it's all deceitful because uh, because then this army comes on them uh, at a later point. Please note, this is just asserted. And and again, how does that fit with Ezekiel 37? Because Ezekiel 37 seems to be Israel is restored to the land, regenerated, and God is in their midst. And then in that condition, they're going to disarm because of the Antichrist and because they're following the Antichrist, that that seems to be a complete contradiction of 37. So he connected it to 37 and now he's offering a possibility for their, to explain their disarmament, them being unwalled based on them following the Antichrist. But Ezekiel 37, they're all saved and Christ is in their midst. Ezekiel 37, 28, and the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Are you saying that 28 is yet future as well? Like what? I've, I've got questions. I've got questions. But once again, please note, this is what I, oh, every time I listen to preaching on Ezekiel 38, I hear so much presupposition, so much, uh, presupposition being a, a, and basically placed onto the text, read into the text, because just rendering the text and going, what does this mean? Or not forgetting what it doesn't mean. What do we have here? And doing an observational exercise, which should always precede the interpretation, but I digress because churches don't do that because that's no fun. You've got to have a sermon. You've got to have three points, right? You don't want to just come to church and say, we're going to do an observational exercise for the next two hours on Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're going to use Sunday school in the morning service. People would leave your church. Oh, yeah, I know. That's why my church is so small, right? Because nobody wants to do that. But that's okay. That's okay. There's got to be some of us who are willing to try it this way. But I, 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 I'm so... None of this is really working on the text. He's just kind of taking what people have said about the text and just imposing it upon the text. This is always my great concern with how churches do things. We just take, you learn a system and then the system becomes your hermeneutic. Meaning you read your system into the Bible and, and, and everyone's like, oh, see, I see it right there. Of course you see it right there. Cause you just read your system into it. That's, oh, oh okay. All right. I, I digress. Let's continue. So, yes, Jason, so North Korea may work with um, the Russian army. That's true, but you can get that kind of headline. It is true. It's, it's in the news, but you can get that kind of headline all the time. The question is, when does it become a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? That's that's why we should search the scriptures. That's why we should read the Bible for ourselves, and that's why we should study the Bible for ourselves and why we should um, you know, start to form our own opinions, and we should compare scripture with scripture and understand. But um, yes, so um, yes, so in, in Ezekiel thirty-eight, 
Rosh is found in verse 2. It's not in this translation, which I use, which I love. The Son of Man set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And I think that is, in some, this is again, in some translations, the Prince of Rosh. Patrick Fairburn, in his commentary written in 1861, ident- identifies Rosh as Russia. He said, I know some of you will want to argue about that and say that's not the case, but he, he identifies it as, uh, as Russia, saying that there was an ancient tribe that went to Russia uh, and um, that... Uh, they were the, the, known as the tribe of Rosh, who became the Russians. I'm just saying that. You may disagree with that. I can't confirm or otherwise. I'm not an archaeologist or a historian. So, um, But Fairburn says that in his commentary. Uh, and um, the next thing is this, this army that comes against Israel is a very great host. Verses 5 and 6, Persia, Ethiopia and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togomar of the north quarters, and all his bands and many people with thee. Uh, and um, and we read there also um, how much, um, yes, verse 16, and thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land, uh, an army like no one's ever seen before, an extraordinary army, a powerful army. They'll bring much weapons, in verse 4. Um, Israel will be defenseless. We said that God will defeat the army um, on the uh, the mountains of Israel, verse 23. Let's look at that, verse 23. This is really important. Um, so thus will I magnify myself, says the Lord. Uh, God says that. Uh, and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Um, verse 22 then, isn't it? But uh, he's going to rain down fire and brimstone on them uh, and destroy them. That, those armies. They'll follow a seven-month, we're told they'll follow a seven-month period of um, when, seven seven months especially, when everybody is involved in burying the dead, going through the land, going through the mountains of Israel, finding bodies and burying them in the valley of Haman Gog, which is basically the valley of Gog Cemetery. Um, uh, and uh, then there'll be an extended period of seven years when others will go through the land and mark out bodies and bones when they find them. So many dead will there be, it will take seven years to complete the task. But for the first seven months, every single person is involved in this. Patrick Furban did some maths on this. Again, he published his um, commentary in 1861. And his math said he calculated that for that to take place, it would need to be an army of 360 million men, 360 million men. Uh, that's an extraordinary number. And then he sort of grew faint and said, that's impossible. But we know that that today and Fairburn couldn't have seen this we know today China alone could field an army of 200 million men what about if India joined with them what if uh, many in the many people what if India joined with them and uh, all of these other nations um so um Fairburn Fairburn wasn't able to maintain his confidence that this would be literally fulfilled uh, because he thought that an army of 360 million men was too large and was impossible Certainly, if they came from Finland, I think that would be impossible. You can't get 360 million men in Russia either because their population is less than 200 million. But all of these nations coming, many, many people coming to 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 um, against Israel in this war. Now, um, the interesting thing here is that this this is not the only reference to this. In Ezekiel 38, we're told in verse... Yeah, where are we told? Let me have a look. Um, okay, um, so verse, verse 17 of 38, we're told that this has been prophesied. God is saying, thus saith the Lord God, 
Um, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them. Now, that's really important because not only is it saying that this isn't just an isolated prophecy. There there are some people who say, well, it's been fulfilled and it was a local conflict and we don't know about it. And it's not, you know, don't get in a fuss about it. But God is saying that he sent his prophets to prophesy many years about this that he has for a long time known about Gog and that Gog is extremely significant in the old overall scheme of things. God is saying that. So, for example, we find Deuteronomy, uh, if you, you look at some of the commentators, we'll talk about some of the verses that speak of this. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. And uh, we read here, we Read here, rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And Matthew Henry is saying that that is part of this prophecy. That's in Deuteronomy. Moses wrote that. It's also in Revelation. But the point here is that. Again, he he goes to commentaries, but he's just asserting. He's just asserting things, right? Like, uh, oh, there's so, this is why th- this is a great example. Well, th- this is all oh, I know we're already over 64 minutes, so I apologize. But this whole th- thing, this whole exercise tonight is once again just convincing me of the need for an observational exercise on Ezekiel 38 and 39, where we just go and observe what's in the text without interpreting it. Because all when it comes to interpreting it, you see what people do. They just run to a commentary, run to a commentary, run to a commentary, just run to a commentary, run to a commentary. And then just you put all the commentaries together, or you look at your kind of your eschatology or your theological system and go, this is the way we interpret Ezekiel 38. You find the verses, you know what your system says about it, you read the verse and go, this is what this verse says. Everybody's like, that's what it says. That's what it means. According to whom or what? This commentary or this commentary. And then everyone acknowledges that depending on your eschatology, you're going to get radically different interpretations of the same verses. Meaning that then it, what, what's really driving the interpretation is the system, not the text. Therefore, the text is not authoritative. The system is authoritative. So he started by saying that there are two problems with Ezekiel 38 and 39. One, there's great amount of ignorance. And two, everyone reads it based, read, it reads into it their presuppositions of what they've been taught and their systems. He starts working through Ezekiel 38. He's not even attempting to go in any kind of order through it. He's jumping around and then taking certain concepts and saying basically based, this is why some people believe and this is why some people believe, but he's not really trying to say how this is being how do you do, how do you arrive at that conclusion based off the text alone? How do you read Ezekiel 38 and go, oh, you've got to show me in a sense, as you would tell people in a math class, show me your work. If you quote a commentary, well, how did the commentary arrive at that conclusion? What was the textual basis of arrive, arriving at that conclusion? And you've asserted that this is future for even us based on what? So we didn't get, uh, we didn't get very far. I am going to stop it here. I'm going to stop it here. We may come back to this this week or tomorrow. 
We may, we may, we may, we may, we may, we may, because I am curious to know where he goes with this. Um, I am appreciative of all the things that he did. Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical. I just believe that so much of the teaching and preaching of Ezekiel 38 is so much of presuppositional, presuppositional eisegesis. In a sense, you're reading your presupposition into the text. And so I think before you do exegesis, even before you do interpretation of any kind, you've got, this is one of those situations you've got to do observation. Pure observation. Pure observation. And it's not going to be fun or pretty. So I'm, that's what I may end up, I'm, I'm convincing myself. Maybe, I, maybe I'm just convincing myself that's what needs to be done. Just, I just don't think you're going to hear a lot of messages doing it that way. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be exciting. It's not going to be like, ooh, this represents this and this represents this and this is how it's going to go down and just wild speculation. And, and maybe the reason they don't have walls is because they've made some deal with the Antichrist because they believe the Antichrist is the Messiah. Well, wait a minute. You said 37 flows into 38. 37 seems that they've already believed in who the Messiah is and that he's somehow with them. So why then would they be turning to the Antichrist? That doesn't even seem to fit the the chronological order which he's already established in the message. So then I'm a little bit more baffled and confused. And when he read it, I, just, I literally wanted to stop right there. Like, if I, I almost want to go to church and just say, first, just give everyone a test on Ezekiel 38 and 39, see how well they pass it. And then, not, not, not based off interpretation, just what's actually in the text, then read it and then stop and then say, okay, everyone, tell me what it means. <laughs> and then immediately people will look down into their study Bibles and start looking at their notes or they'll be on their phones looking something. No, 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 no. Don't tell me what other people says, says it means. Based off the text, based off the words that are used, what does it mean? Is it future for us or is it history for us? Ah, so many questions. But we have to talk about it because the current situation going on in Israel, everyone's talking about Ezekiel 38 and 39, which happens all the time. We need to know what's there and we need to determine what has to be present, what has to occur for you even come close to even claiming it's Ezekiel 38 or 39. I don't think we can say anything close right now is Ezekiel 38, 39, especially if 37 has to happen, which would be not only the restoration of Israel into the land, but then how much of the land are they supposed to have before you say they've really been restored? But it sounds like it's national salvation of Israel, which hasn't occurred, so... You can't get to Gog and Magog if, if Ezekiel 37 must come before it. Now you can say, Ezekiel 37, you can say, well, that's not talking about the nation. That's we're talking about spiritual Israel. The church, people will be saved. And then 38, God will fight against our spiritual enemies and then turn it all into a spiritual metaphor. You could do that, but I don't think that that works either. Lots of questions, lots of different interpretations. But all the interpretations are wild speculations, many times based off Again, someone drawing a conclusion and reading the conclusion into the text and and everyone after that continues to follow the same plan and the same presupposition and very few people want to go do the observational approach. So there we have it. I wish, oh, I wish we could have done something far better, but that was, hey, that's the way sermon reviews work. I don't listen to them first. We do it in real time. So I've got this uh, saved. I'm going to put... I'm going to put Gog of Magog, I think is the name of this uh, message. Gog of Magog, the coming war, 
and I believe you can find it on the Sermons 2.0 app or beta.sermonaudio.com. You should go listen to the rest of it. We may review the rest of it, but uh, I think this is really leading me in where the direction I'm going to head to tomorrow. I think we're still going to work on uh, the tabernacle in the first hour, but I think the second hour, I'm just, when everyone walks in, I'm going to be like, hey, go ahead and leave now if you don't want to do a very long (laughs) and tedious work on an observational exercise on Ezekiel 38. Yeah, that's the reason our church is so small. <laughs> but I think that's what we're going to do. In the meantime, email me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful Sunday evening. Please, 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 please pay close attention to what's currently happening in Israel. Please pray. Israel, if they have not begun, they have to be getting close to getting ready to go into Gaza with their military to retaliate against the strike that Hamas pulled against them. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to be horrible. And it definitely could lead to escalation in the region. Please pray. Death, destruction is occurring. Over Well, over, over 2,000 people have already lost their lives. It's going to only grow and get worse. And uh, people are suffering and dying. So while you crawl into bed tonight, just know that on the other side of the world, Death and destruction is happening. So at least take a moment to pray uh, for those who've already lost loved ones and sadly for those who will be losing not only their own lives, but the lives of their loved ones coming up within probably the next 12 to 24 hours. It's going to be very difficult to watch, but it is going to be occurring. So thank you for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.